0: Out of a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid
2: Cancer show. Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Because he has a lot
0: of chutzpah. <laughs> There, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely lame.
2: And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer
3: Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zeppelin. Woo-hoo! Not that
0: there's anything wrong with that. Oh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: Monday, July 9th, and welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 16 year survivor
4: of pediatric brain cancer. I'm Kenny Kane, survivor of red hair and freckles, and we are your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. Lisa Bernhardt will be joining us shortly for an underground, undisclosed
1: bunker in upstate New York. It's not okay. The 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? time to get
4: busy living folks because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time tonight's show does everyone need a therapist i know matthew does survivor spotlight emily morrison young adult cancer survivor brain tumor julie larson lcsw cancer patient advocate new york city psychotherapist and finally katrina radke mft i have no idea what that means but i'm very excited to find out olympic swimmer author be your best without the stress the Stupid
1: Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, also known as the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation online, 24/7 at stupidcancer.org. We are not your father's cancer society, but we are bringing the cause of cancer under forty to the national spotlight where it belongs. So, welcome aboard another fun
4: and exciting romp of hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure and survivorship is all that matters. And a stupid cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live from the chemo deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. And a final reminder that the Stupid Cancer Show has a live
1: interactive chat feed. During each and every broadcast, we invite you to join in the fun to connect with our friends and ask questions our guests. And with that, our self-ingratiating applause. I've earned it. Yay. And uh, from her underground bunker with Dick Cheney. Lisa Bernhardt.
2: I love being with Tricky Dick. Oh, he's not Tricky Dick. He's the, other, the other one. He's the other one. He's I a, know.
1: He's the Dick of quail hunting. He is. I heard a funny story about him. Um, apparently he had his like 11th heart attack and he has like this heart
0: Wait,
2: that's a, a knee slapper. 11 heart attack. Yes. Yes. 11. Yes.
1: His, his new heart is like a robotic heart. Yeah. That that is its own pump. So it doesn't, like it pumps all the blood for him. It has like a belt and a whatever. So he's
4: like Iron Man.
1: But he has no pulse. Like it doesn't pulse. It just really? flows the blood. And it's like this new technology now, and it's creepy because it's really working. It's saving a lot of people's lives. But you have no pulse, but your blood is flowing through your body. Interesting. So
2: what if he were just sleeping and somebody went to take his pulse and felt that he didn't have a pulse and then they thought he was dead?
4: They'd call it. Yeah. <laughs> And the world would be a better place His memoir would be like Dick Cheney buried alive (laughs) They
0: called it
1: No, it's a real thing If you Google like heart heart transplant with no pulse Or something like that You'll see this amazing technology I heard that he actually had that procedure So now he has no pulse He is the walking dead
2: Wow, that's bizarre I'm going to have to Google that
1: Yeah, phenomenal How could he be so heartless? Anyway, James Manning and Matthew Beckett Gentlemen
4: How are you? Good evening Good 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 evening. evening Welcome
1: back How are you doing? Great
4: Eh, modest. You guys are like the two old men. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it was awful. Terrible. Yeah, Waldorf you, you, and Stadler are sitting yeah. here across from I was, me. I
2: was going to say, the, the dudes from the Muppet Show, right, up in the balcony. <laughs> they
1: absolutely are. And they're <laughs> actually
2: the two youngest of all of us.
1: Yes, I'm, I'm they are. summer
4: school. I don't know what Matt's excuse is.
1: Matt has no excuse to be unhappy. He comes here, and he loves it.
4: Love it.
1: gets to see his ginger buddy.
4: I love
2: (laughs) Matthew, and he loves it. And then you hear Matt going, love it.
4: (laughs) (laughs) My favorite
1: thing to do every day.
4: Now you made him a Jewish old grandma. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what's going on in the news?
2: Well, you know what? I'm actually, you guys checking out this piece. It's um, It's on the front page of the Times website about genetic testing for melanoma. There's a story of this woman who had melanoma in her eyeball, in the back of her eye, and it's this game changer where, actually, once you get this diagnosis of this type of melanoma, they can basically just tell you if you're going to live or die. I mean, it's that sort of – cut like, there's two ways that this can go. The news is either that, you know, you're – you're, uh, sorry, we're in the bunker here – that you're either going to, you know, hooray, we can take this out and um, and we'll replace your eye and it'll be great, or it's, you know, sorry, this is terminal. But that with that kind of precision, that they can determine this.
1: You know, James actually mentioned that when he came into the office. He was like all agog and giggity about I, this, this. I was giggity? Giggity. I was
4: giggity.
1: As giggity as you can possibly get. Okay. You're, you're giggity goo. Yes.
4: I was giggity goo. Yes. Okay. Okay, well, go ahead.
1: So wh- what's your take on this,
4: I Reverend? Think it, I think it's kind of scary to know that you can get this genetic test that will tell you within five years you'll, you're going to die or you're not going to die. Uh, do you do you want that genetic test? Or Would you
1: rather know or not? I don't think I'd want to know.
2: Uh, well, the flip side is if you know you're going to live, obviously, then you don't have to worry about dying.
1: Right. True. Well said, Freud. <laughs> <laughs> that was more young than Freud. Okay. If you well, know you're is, going to live, then you're better off.
2: That, yeah. That's my analytic moment since we're Fantastic. doing a show about therapy.
1: Wonderful. So all right, so that that's sort of progress-ish, right? Giggity-giggity-goo. Is that it? <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> else going on in the world. Going on. In unrelated news, I heard that Scranton is bankrupt, and everyone working there for the government is now on minimum wage. So that must be fantastic. Isn't the cost
4: of living in Scranton like minimal? I have no idea. And then it snows, and they make a shitload of money. Maybe. I think that's how. Let's Scranton get the mayor works. on. Yes. Right. I saw Jason Erica today from uh Jason Malott and, and Erica Reyes,
1: some of our original volunteers from Florida. Two, two survivors that met and got married. Amazing story.
4: Um, what were they here I for? I love them. They were here for a, a wedding in Jersey, so they made the trip over the Hudson and said hello. That's an effort. Yeah, and we walked uh, We walked partially over the Brooklyn Bridge. I can't say that I walked across the Brooklyn Bridge, but I did, I did half the distance because, of course, you have to come back.
1: Yes. So, technically, you walked across the bridge, but twice that way.
4: Yeah, it was kind of like how I, I quote-unquote, ran the half marathon, right. and, the, and then and the bus came along and picked me up.
1: Speaking of that, we have the New York City Marathon coming from November, right? We do. Stupid Cancer, ING.
4: Yes. We all all slots. the slots are full, right? They are full. That's amazing. Stupid and, Cancer, wow. ING. We have to get them nice, like, dry-fit shirts that say Stupid Cancer. Well, yeah, you're in charge of that. Go for it. All right.
2: Kenny, Kenny are you running it?
4: I, no. know. <laughs> <laughs> I will be doing shots for every mile that Scott Slater passes. Nice. It's going to be the. Uh, that was
1: the best response in history.
4: Yeah. I know. I, uh, no. I mean, I'll run two halves. Uh, Just not the, together. Right. Right, exactly. And over the course of my lifetime. Yeah. Fantastic.
1: Well, let's kick it off. Let's get to the Survivor Spotlight. She's lovely. She's fantastic. She's sitting here in the studio. And let's give her some great music. Tell her how you really feel. I was lying. She's hideous, reprehensible, and scornable. She attended Virginia Tech, diagnosed with uh, astrocytoma a year ago. Just celebrating her 25th birthday. She's uh, really a tour de force. Came onto the scene pretty quickly with the Stupid Cancer Universe. Works in finance for Alliance Bernstein. Loves to travel. Just got back from a two-week stint in Europe. And returning champion of the Stupid Cancer Show, the one and only Emily Morrison. Emily. Good evening.
2: Hello. Thank you so much.
1: So, tonight's show is about therapy, but just for the listeners out there who may, may or may not have heard the show that you were on, mm-hmm. um, tell us about this uh, phenomenal comedy of terrors that has been the last uh, 14 months.
5: Oh, man. Well, I didn't even tell you the last thing, that my mom broke both her wrists yesterday. Yesterday? Well, oh. yeah, she broke them three weeks ago, but she just got the cast, I guess, today. So, it has been a rough 14 months. Uh, Last year, I started getting headaches, and after a few months of misdiagnosis, was diagnosed with an astrocytoma. It is inoperable. It's in the middle of my brain, and spent all of April in the hospital, uh, having spinal taps and other really fun...
1: Those are phenomenal.
5: ...brain-related, yeah. Those used to
1: be my first dates. Mm. Yeah.
5: True. How many have you had?
1: Spinal taps, I'd had uh, four. Five. Okay.
5: Mm. Ah. Yep. Emily brain surgery?
1: You win. No, I had one surgery. Three. I know. Yeah, you win.
5: It's horrible. It's a contest. And awesome. <laughs>
1: um, but you were misdiagnosed, which I, is always phenomenal.
5: I was. So I had a CT scan at a unnamed hospital in New York, and they missed my brain tumor, told me I was having migraines and grease headaches because... Both my grandparents had passed away, so I ended up making a therapy appointment to deal with these grief headaches, and coincidentally, the night I was diagnosed was a Thursday, and the first therapy session was that Friday morning, so talk about perfect timing.
1: So wait, wait, let's just go over that again. You had made a therapy session for yourself not knowing you would be diagnosed with brain cancer. Mm-hmm.
5: Imagine my therapist's surprise when we walk when I walk in, she thinks we're talking about dead grandparents, and I'm like, Hey, guess what? I have an inoperable brain tumor. Nice to meet you.
4: <laughs> she goes to her bookshelf and gets a different book. That's like literally how I went down.
5: My friend goes, Well, at least you know you're getting your money's worth for the hour. Wow.
4: Wow. Okay.
1: Very impressive.
5: Amazing. Yeah. Wow.
1: So, um, all right, so talk us through this um this probably should have been filmed initial session with your therapist then
5: well, it was interesting because the night before I find out that I have a brain tumor, we don't know that it's inoperable at that point, and I for some reason, called one of my good friends from work and told her what they had said that I had a brain tumor. And she said, type up everything that the radiologist wrote in his report. So I typed it up and sent it to her at like 1130 at night, and she called her mom, who works for Columbia. Her mom made phone calls all night to get me in with a neurologist the next morning. So I go to this therapy session, and while I'm at the therapy session meeting this lady for the first time... My mom and my friend from work are calling me nonstop, basically to tell me that as soon as I leave that session, I have to go up to Columbia to most likely be admitted, which I ultimately was. I left my apartment that morning, unshowered, in a sweatshirt and Uggs, and if you know me, you know that that is not what I would ever leave the apartment wearing. Right. Planning to go back and clean, because I had two friends flying into town that day. So that was our first session, me half on the phone, me half trying to be like, I swear I'm not crazy. I just found out I have cancer. I'm 24. Right. So. Is, so well, Emily, put...
2: how was? Uh, sorry, Matthew, could I just. So I, how did your therapist, though, for the time that you were able to speak to her and not be on the phone? Seriously, how was she able to cope? Had she handled cancer patients before? Was she thrown by it because it was not what she was expecting? Was she helpful at all? How did that go down from her end?
5: She, I'm so passionate about this topic because I've had such a positive experience with her. She is so calm and just this presence where she is so good at listening and also drawing things out of you. And she did a really good job that first day, not making me feel bad when I had to answer the phone and just kind of, letting me be there in the moment, and since then, she's really become this huge figure in my life. I think of her almost like a grandmother. I mean, my grandmother had just passed away, and she had lived with me, so I always had kind of that extra figure, and my therapist, her name is um, Dr. Chenlin. she's just been amazing. I see her every Tuesday, and...
1: Were you her first cancer patient?
5: I don't know. I don't... I haven't asked. That's a great question, though. I should ask her.
1: Because that'd be kind of weird.
5: I'm sure she's. I'm sure she's had other cancer patients. I'm not sure how many 25 year olds she's had with inoperable brain cancer. Right, like 50
1: 50. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Except you're not well, dating her, right? <laughs> I
5: literally feel like that movie was based on my life.
1: Yes, we, we've heard that more than more than a million <laughs> yeah, really times.
5: Yeah.
1: yeah. Wait. Sorry. I just. I really don't want to fixate on this, but the idea that you went to this therapist. Who, who, how did you find this therapist in the first place?
5: That's an interesting part of the story. So, the I went to the New York Headache Clinic, which it's by Dr. Moskoff in um, on the Upper East Side, and the nurse practitioner there is the one who actually ended up ordering the MRI after my misdiagnosis. She said, you know, I just want to cover all our bases. Let's make a list of ten things that we're gonna do. You know, one, we're gonna put you on a week of steroids to try and get rid of this daily headache two, we're going to do this, three, blah, blah, blah. And she said, let's do an MRI just to make sure we're covering our bases because she really recognized that my symptoms were more than just migraines. Right. But she also said, let me give you the name of a therapist. I've never met her, but I've heard she's great. And so I called and made an appointment Right. just kind of to follow the list and figure out what was causing me to have all these really bad headaches.
2: So this nurse practitioner, in a word, was awesome because
5: she she not only was the one who
2: ultimately helped you get diagnosed, but she presented the entire panorama of everything that a person in the medical field should do Mm -hmm. upon being, I mean, she made sure you got the right diagnosis. She hooked you up with the shrink, a good one, no less. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow, we love our nurse practitioners.
5: Yes. Absolutely. She was fabulous. And the owner of the practice, I actually couldn't see him because he didn't take my insurance. He stayed that night that I was first diagnosed that Thursday night, just in case we had questions about the MRI. I mean, I can't say enough about the New York Headache Clinic. Right. They really, they really did their job. Wow.
6: Terrific.
1: All right, so let's let's talk us through then. How has this relationship with this, you know, unwitting therapist, if you would,
0: mm-hmm.
1: how has that played itself out over the last year for you?
5: She's really been great. She's become a central figure in my life. Like if I died tomorrow, I'd want her to give what's it called at the funeral? Eulogy. Eulogy, because I feel like she sees a lot of different sides of me. Like I go in there and I can talk about cancer, I can talk about dating, I can talk about work. She's really focused actually on making sure that I have a full life, and I think that's really unique.
1: Right. Wow. That's impressive. Do you think that
5: she has do you think that she has
2: sort of cancer specific mechanisms mechanisms that she uses in her therapy with you or do you think they're just effective more general ways in in sort of instructing you or guiding you as to how to live your life
5: You know, I think I think it's interesting because as a young adult, I'm not sure that the typical cancer mechanisms would necessarily be useful because we face a unique set of needs from a therapist. Right.
0: Right. And so
5: one of the things that we talk about is dating and how do I feel about that. And I think having that outlet has really helped because you shouldn't be 25 with an inoperable brain tumor. It's not normal.
1: No, it's not normal. This
5: is not normal. We shouldn't be having this conversation. (laughs) No, I'm thrilled that we are.
1: Yes, exactly. So, all right, so... so your friends and family but we talk about young adults having unique issues this whole mm-hmm. show was all about being the voice of young adults what would you say you know if you could put together like the the top two or three specific things to you as a 25 year old now has it been fertility has it been your career has it been dealing with your friends uh what what would you say encapsulates this past year for you socially
5: socially oh I would, for me I would say it's been getting back into a routine. I'm so busy. If you look at my calendar, I have things every night. Yes. And it's kind of absurd. Like I'm on chemo after the show tonight. Wow. And
1: She's an underachiever. <laughs> no, I know.
5: But I would say it's really weird for me because last summer I had radiation all last summer. So I literally didn't have a summer. I'm finding clothes in my closet that still have tags on them from two years ago, basically. So for me, socially, it's been just getting back into doing normal things, going out drinking. I mean, I go to the oncologist, and they hand you the form to fill out. How often do you drink? And I just write daily, and then I write, I hand it to them, and I'm like, I'm 25. What do you want from me? Right. You can tell me that I'm not allowed to shave because of low platelets, but I'm a girl and I'm 25, and that's just not an option.
1: Right. So you're just living your life. Totally. Right. 100%. Mm Mm-hmm.
5: What about Nair? Would they let you use Nair? Nair? I don't know. Could bring it up.
1: Or that stuff from forty-year-old version when they just ripped this chest open. Waxing? Where, is that wax?
5: Yeah, that okay. I can definitely do.
1: Okay, good, fantastic. <laughs> so. Good to know. Yeah. I'll file that away.
5: <laughs> where they ripped the chest open. Yeah. Nice description.
1: It's nasty stuff. So. Okay. So and so, looking into the lens of your mortality which is what every young adult go, the, uh, goes through when they're dealing with this, regardless of how long it lasts.
0: Mm-hmm. We were
1: talking before the show about how I'm 16 years, 16 and a half years, like coming up on 17 years, and every time I have a hiccup, I think there's something wrong with me.
5: Absolutely. It never goes away. cancer sighted.
1: And I remember, yeah, what did I call it? <laughs> I call, I forgot what I said before. It was really funny. but the, I the, call
5: it neuro-crazy.
1: Neuro-crazy. I like that <laughs> term better. But the... I remember being in the thick of it, and like within that first six months or year, of dealing with this issue. And I, I was 21, so I was I was like a noob compared to what you are, 25. And the whole point being, how do you just wake up every day and get things done and not worry about what you're going to worry about anyway?
5: You want to know what's really funny about that question? When I started at my job at Alliance Bernstein in 2009. I wrote this whole proposal for how I wanted to bring in college students to the firm and do like a, you know, half-day program with them. And I presented it to a senior manager, and he looked at me, and his only question was, when you wake up in the morning, what do you think? Like, what is driving you to be like this? And I think the answer is the same. It's just what you do. It's right. who you are and that it, it you just live. You live your life every day.
1: Right. Is it that simple?
5: I mean, there's just no other option. Right.
1: Well said, Lisa anything else?
5: no, I just I love Emily's
2: attitude, and uh, I love that she's you know i I think that's a really good point what you said I mean it's not only the the unmet unique you know set of issues that we talk about all the time, like you know fertility and jobs and all that stuff, but down to what Emily said about you know i'm twenty five years old, I'm gonna shave. You know my legs and under my arm like that and drink level, alcohol yeah and that <laughs> level of minutia of things that are important in our daily lives that you know you just don't think about that, of course, I mean that it's so disruptive, and you know i just I just find it fascinating all those you know on that granular a level mm-hmm. um of what a young adult has to deal with that's just so so vastly different from any other age group.
5: Sometimes I feel like a pregnant woman, like I'm not supposed to eat sushi because the risk of getting a foodborne illness is higher. But you know what? I love sushi. Well, that also
1: beckons the issue of, like, nutrition and, you know, you just just want to be a 25-year-old, but is there any sort of reality check in there about what you really should maybe not do, like eat Twinkies and smoke?
5: I mean, I wrestle with that daily. We know that cancer feeds on sugar. Right. So the fact that I had a chocolate chip cookie at 4 o'clock today, I know that that wasn't the best choice, but I'm 25. I've always said, ever since I was diagnosed, that if I was going to die tomorrow, I wanted that bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit today.
1: (laughs) That just beckons Chad Whitman. Kenny, you want to chime in on Chad Whitman? Oh, Chad Whitman.
4: Rest in peace. Yes. He, uh, dare we say how he went out? Well, yes, we should. Please do. So Chad Whitman was, he could give a shit about anything besides just rocking all the time. He he had a stroke. Well, y- you go into it because you know the... Well, he was the most flamboyant gay gentleman I've ever
1: met in my entire life, and he was an extraordinary human being. Mm-hmm. He was diligent, professional, responsible, mature, but he just loved to live his life every second of the day, regardless of his brain cancer, which ultimately was not what, what killed him. He, he uh, was... Uh, he went back home To New Mexico He was interning for us And volunteered for us For over a year and a half mm-hmm. Amazing Amazing guy um, Went back to nursing well, can school Kenny tell Just the the story of your first day at the Oh yeah,
4: yeah So like I find out about the organization In, in a school cl- uh, Class at school And I come in For like day number two After meeting Matt With a group of other people And I come to this room uh, Suite 801 Tiny little room And it's Chad Dancing the house music Like like shaking in like short shorts. Yeah, like <laughs> shaking his ass, and I'm like, I'm here for the internship. He's like, Oh, come on in, cutie. Just sit down at the on the couch and uh, no
0: Ma- voice Matthew. Back, Matthew, will,
4: Matthew will be right back. All right, if, I,
1: I will do a random visual. All right, he was Agador Spartacus from the Birdcage. Oh God! Does anyone know what I'm talking about? No, I'm um, um, too yeah. young for this. <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. Hank yeah. Azaria in yeah. his consummate role in movie history. As Robin Williams' uh, maid, maid servant in the birdcage.
5: Well, I respect that. Yes. I mean, well, well we didn't finish at,
1: the story. Yeah, he he had a he went back to New Mexico, uh, had a stroke, and went into the hospital. And it turned out to be um, um, his melanoma spread to his brain after he was like cured okay, okay. of it, and he basically died while. What, he's smoking a cigarette?
4: Yeah, he had a stroke while smoking a cigarette in front of the hospital. Yeah. Oh, God. He went out the way he wanted to go out, and Mm -hmm. God bless his soul.
5: Well, i got to tell you, at OMG this year, Sue and I walked into the breakfast and took a look around, and we (laughs) were like, oh, no, we're not eating this. We went to McDonald's and got bacon, egg, and cheese biscuits, large Diet Cokes. Wait, we
4: were too healthy for you?
5: Oh, it, there was just absolutely nothing that we were going to eat. <laughs> food
4: and cold. <call. laughs> and got
5: McFlurry oh, w- for breakfast and walked into the room of all the cancer survivors carrying large Diet Cokes and bacon, for, egg, and cheese biscuits. For breakfast. For breakfast. God wow. bless you. Okay,
2: now I have to just say, well, before we let Emily go, this just begs the question. So is there is there, do you, on the flip side of that, are there moments when you say, you know, I have to have my smoothie now or I have to have this? Do you have moments where you go the other help. way or no? <laughs> yeah.
5: Um. Well, you know what?
2: And maybe here's, it's no. <laughs> well,
5: here's the thing. For example, today I was getting a salad for lunch, and I had one more thing to put in it, and I was like, well, let's just throw some broccoli in because you know that broccoli fights cancer. So it does go both ways. I'm just not going to... I'm not going to let cancer take any more of my life than it already has. Right.
1: Well said. I just pulled up some images of Agador Spartacus, and I'm going to throw it up in the in the chat room. I want to feel like I have some relevancy whatsoever. All right. It's a great visual. Some. All right, so Chad Whitman was, was Agador Spartacus. Yes. He sounds awesome. Kenny's agreeing with me.
5: I look forward to meeting him one day.
1: Oh, yes. What? No, let's be nice. Well, we're all going to meet him one day.
5: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Okay. He'll be smoking a cigarette out front. He will. (laughs) Out the gates. Out the gates. All right. Well, Emily, you're sticking around for the show, but thank you so much for being our Survivor Spotlight. You rock, as always. And now, on to the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay. During this part of the show, we announced our uh, fabulous something calendar of events and we don't want you missing out on some cool stuff going on if you have something you want us to talk about during this part of the show send an email to info
4: at stupid com. kenny all right coming up we have the stupid cancer happy hour north carolina in the triangle area that's on july 10th followed by a new jersey happy hour on july 25th another happy hour august 1st in denver And finally, uh, leading into the WTF Life with Cancer Conference on August 4th, we have a Stupid Cancer DC Metro Happy Hour on Friday, August 3rd. And you can find out about all of these and more
1: at events.stupidcancer.com. All right, the mailing list for the sixth annual OMG Cancer Summit in Las Vegas next spring is at omg2013.org, soon to be its own Facebook group coming your way very, very, very soon. Click in the upper right-hand corner at omg2013.org and sign up for the mailing list for the latest in uh, dates, venue, agenda, registration, players' club,
4: and other exciting information. The Stupid Cancer Forums have over 2,500 members. This is your premier online community connected with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.com and sign up with one click through Facebook. And finally, it is official, OMG East. 2012 is being held on
1: September 15th at Peru College. Emily Morrison, in studio will be one of our survivors on the panel in the afternoon. This special one-day event will be limited to the first 150 registrants, so visit omg, oh wait, what, east.omg12.org. That's east.omg12.org now and register. Limited seats, free event, and a special VIP after-party in the evening that night.
0: And that, and that is that just is your stupid, stupid cancer, cancer news. news.
1: Okay, we got Julie and Katrina dialed in. Let's read their introductions. All right. My first guest... Oh, this is a really, 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 really old bio. <laughs>
4: I'm reading it with okay, let, with you. I'll just say
1: that Julie Larson is one of the premier young adult psychotherapists in the New York City area, formerly from Cancer Care, heading up their young adult program. She's been all around town and then some with speaking engagements, leadership, uh, support groups, and more. Uh All over the place. All over the place. We love her. And uh, Katrina Radke, uh, from the farm town to Olympic swimmer to bedroom and beyond, the therapist Katrina Radke uses her inspirational story, professional experiences, and powerful yet simple tools to help you find what drives you to be your best. While feeling deeply satisfied in all areas of your life, uh, her life-changing book helps you awaken the lost aspects of yourself to become more aware of your impact and importance. Please welcome Julie Larson and Katrina Radke. I shall unmute them so they can actually talk. Julie and Katrina, welcome to the show. Thank,
0: Thank you very you. much.
1: It's so great to have you guys. You know, the, it, we've never done a show about therapy, and there's such a stigma, especially when you're in New York, there are people that really don't have, like, quote, real problems that have therapists, but then there are people that have, like, real problems and need therapists and don't think they do. Uh, Emily is an amazing uh, story. I don't know if you've been listening to the show so far, but uh, she... Uh, was misdiagnosed with what, stress headaches or something, grief headaches?
5: Yeah, grief headaches and migraines.
1: Right, so she made an appointment to see a therapist, but like an hour before seeing that therapist, she was diagnosed with brain cancer and then is now friends for life, and this therapist has really helped her. So uh, just a really interesting conversation piece about how young people deal with therapy for, like, benign reasons, no pun intended, or Malignant reasons, pun intended. Uh, I'd like to just start with uh, with Julie, because you've been working in the young adult space for a very long time, dealing in, in psychotherapy. Uh, tell us about your trajectory. What have you seen? What have you experienced?
3: Well, thanks. It's, and it's nice to have this show. I'm glad you're doing this topic. Um, what have I seen? Well, you're you're right. I, I work primarily with people under the age of 40, and um, I have a, quite a bit of experience working with young adult survivors. I would say the main difference that I feel as a therapist between somebody that walks in my door who is young and an older adult is the style that I work with, with in which I work with them. And I think that that's something that when you talk about therapy stigma, so many younger um individuals don't don't quite know okay what's therapy going to be like how am I supposed to act? What is this person going to say to me? Is it going to be a bunch of, you know, mystique and smoke and mirrors? And, I, you know, a little fearful, maybe a little hesitant, a little ambivalent, a little skeptical about what this process is like. And I think um, the way in which you find a good fit and the style of that therapist makes a really big difference.
2: Let's go jump over. Hi, guys, this is Lisa Bernhardt. Let's jump over to Katrina. So, Katrina, you, um, obviously, a great swimmer, uh, 1988 Seoul Olympics, some Olympic game that you were at, right, including leading the national team and many honors and kudos. Yes, that's
6: yes, yes.
2: So mm-hmm. how did you then make the leap or kind of segue into writing your book and sort of dealing with stress and, and looking inward um, yes, to well, yourself I had an and for others?
6: Yeah, I had an interesting journey And first of all, I want to thank you for having me on the show. I'm so glad this is a great topic for so many people because our society loves to get caught up in thinking everything's fine. And so um, part of the reason why I wrote my book is that when I was 15, I'd been on the national team already for a couple of years, I actually had mononucleosis, did not make the world championship team that year, and then went on to make, you know, the next few years I made the national team as well as the Olympics, and then was on the national team for seven years. But interestingly, I seemed like I had it all. I was actually very, very sick. I Pretended that I was fine, justified that everything was going okay because I got you know I was still winning medals and doing well, but in the end, my body ended up my body was shutting down on me, It was screaming at me loudly to say, Stop, stop, <laughs> and I ended up being really sick with chronic fatigue syndrome and bedridden at the age of twenty two with disabled parking and um so I went through this feeling of um you know dealing with the debility and illness that um I struggled with you know for about ten years. And from having gone from being this world-class athlete to all of a sudden not even able, being able to walk without being knocked out, it was a huge change and a huge shift very radically. And so I had to learn. I went through my own therapy. I went through my own spiritual journey. And, you know, I had always eaten pretty well, but I changed how I ate a little bit more. And I just studied everything impossible because I was just this determined to get to the place where I could get healthy again, even though there was no guarantees. And so I got to the place finally where I, when I hit bottom in some ways – I learned to accept that, gosh, even if I am sick for the rest of my life, I have my spirit, I have myself, and that is the most important thing. And um, so I decided to go to grad school as I, I got a little bit healthier enough to do so and became a therapist myself. And um, now I work with, um, I teach sports psychology for college, and I I love working with people, you know, athletes as well as people who have dealt with chronic illness as well as corporate people um, and families um, in terms of helping them find their true self, find out, you know, we all deal with struggles and adversity, and how do we actually manage them and and deal with them so that we can still enjoy our life.
2: So without having cancer, you had a, and what what did you say your ultimate diagnosis was?
6: My ultimate diagnosis was CFIDS, which is chronic fatigue immune dysfunction syndrome, and so some people call it Epstein-Barr virus, but they're slightly different. And um, you know, during my time when I had this, which was the early 90s, you know, doctors at the time really knew nothing about it. They didn't know. They just told me that I needed to take a depression pill, or stop swimming, or you know, take antibiotics. (laughs) They didn't really know what the solution
2: was. So you were so you did not have a cancer diagnosis, but you clearly, like many of our listeners um and members of our organization, you knew what it was like as a young person to feel your body betray you, particularly for you who was so athletic and relied on her body for so much
6: yes i i feel like I feel like I understand people with cancer, and I mean my father's actually gone through brain cancer, which is obviously he's older but it's it is interesting, um especially young people when you meet them who have gone through something so so hard That's a very much a hardship physically and then it becomes a mental emotional hardship and how do you deal with that and so like listening to Julie I totally agree I mean working with somebody um, who can listen to you and be a third party to help you guide you on your path is so crucial I know for me when I saw my therapist I loved her I mean I, I first went to somebody who I didn't really know if I totally trusted and so I went to her twice and then I found another one and then she was somebody I stayed with for two, two years And she was somebody who got me to realize that, okay, my will had gotten me very far in my life, but I had to really learn to let go and surrender. And that was a big piece of my learning as well as learning to ask for help.
1: Well, if I could bring back Julie for a second. You know, we've done, um, we we talk about Get Busy Living and we talk about the unique issues of young adults. We've even done radio shows called All Young Adult Diseases Suck because the issues that are faced, dating, self-image, fertility, employment, are kind of universal regardless of what's, what's affecting you. But, uh, you know, Julie, what what do you find are the most interesting coping skills or, or um, I, I guess, uh, psychosocial uh, mechanisms that the young adult patient um, uses? I mean, Emily here just has gumption, but a lot mm-hmm. of people don't have that innate personality.
0: Mm-hmm. Well,
3: I think that, you know, your young adult years, healthy or not, whether, wherever you are, being in your twenties and thirties is all about building whether you're building a career. You're building a social network, be that friendships or dating. You might be getting married and building a family. It's about you know, climbing and building and gathering, I would say. and um and when a diagnosis interrupts that, you, you can feel very obvious that you can feel very interrupted. you can feel very pulled back, stagnant, you know frustrated. You know, and, and at the same time, there's and I, you know, re, you know, I hesitate to use this word, but there's opportunity there to learn, and I think part of young adulthood also is understanding yourself and coming to understand what your not only your strengths are. We all can pretty much begin to, to begin to identify our strengths, but also begin to learn what maybe our weaknesses are, and that that's okay. And that everybody has that. And how do we compensate for those weaknesses? How do we surround ourselves with support around those, those, um, those parts of ourselves? And I think understanding and learning yourself is the vital component to what this age is and what um, therapy kind of helps you to understand, so how you get to know yourself in a different way so that you can keep moving forward in, in, fulfilling, in fulfilling directions.
1: Yeah, Katrina, one of your um one of the things I read about you is that you know in sort of in overcoming your challenges and recognizing that you perhaps have the potential to to live with and beyond them, it it in turn can create leadership in that sense. And I we sort of really found that in the young adult cancer movement, which is really only about five and a half or six years old, that a lot of young adults don't realize that they have the potential to really just live their lives, but it's given them a platform to give back to the next them. Is that something that you you, you, uh, you impart?
6: Yes, absolutely. It's funny, when I was in my early 20s, I, you know, listening to Julian, listening to you talk about this, absolutely, I was in a place where, you know, like a lot of people who end up having a serious illness at a young age, it can seem so devastating because your life is all no longer able to just go date. I remember for me, I was so sick I couldn't even talk on the phone because I had no voice, and um, you know, let alone be able to go out with somebody for a meal um, or something else. And so I guess for me, I knew I always had to write my book, Be Your Best Without the Stress, and I knew it was going to take a while because I had to do my own healing and journey first before I would be ready. And I feel like because of that big experience, I really want to be able to help people, and I have been doing this, influence them to find their true self, trust that it's okay to go through what they love, even if they are sick. There's still pieces in their day that they can enjoy. I remember one thing my therapist had said to me when I was um, in college. She said to me, you know, I couldn't sleep. I was so sick. I just, my body ached so much that sometimes I'd be lucky to get a couple hours sleep. And sometimes I'd have my most lucid, clear moments at like 2 a.m. in the morning. And she said, enjoy that time. Get up and journal. Get up and draw. Get up and paint. Do something that's you know, something maybe I never couldn't do but allowed me to feel alive. And so sometimes just realizing that we still have ourselves in there, finding that deeper self, finding a new potential, even though some adversity has, may have happened, we may find more happiness, even more than we even had before.
2: Julie, let's talk about um, with how you deal with people, uh, with the, the concept of fear, and obviously which is anybody who's going through cancer or any other illness um, at a young age. Um, when you get an initial diagnosis and somebody is just, Overcome and over, almost paralyzed with fear. What are the steps that you use to help them work through that? I would
3: say that um, the type of therapy that I in, in um, that I begin with with most of my clients is something called CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. And what cognitive behavior and that's usually how I begin. I, I can move in different directions after that. But what cognitive behavioral therapy is? is it's the connection between what you're thinking and what you're feeling. So if a feeling such as fear or anxiety is overcoming and overwhelming and just very, very difficult to grab onto, part of what I'm looking to understand and helping my clients to understand is what are you thinking about and are those thoughts that you're having that are driving that feeling, are they accurate? Because if they're distorted in any way, then your feeling is distorted. So I have people do a lot of homework when they see me and begin to kind of journal their thoughts or begin to self-observe and come back to me with what those thoughts are so that we can look at them a little more closely together. And and then maybe take some of those thoughts and, and find ways to ground, ground ourselves, ground you around, you know, facts. I tell people all the time, you know, we need to live in a place of what is, not what if. And so how do you kind of come to understand what is, is, <laughs> you know, like, what are the words that your doctor has told you? What are the black and white evidence that you have to challenge some of the scary thoughts? I would say that that's that's something. The yes. other thing, if I can just kind of just say one other quick thing, the other tool that I find is that through all of this experience, there's grief, there's loss. Sure. And that that's that's very difficult. And I think in our society we like to gloss things over. Everything, Everybody wants to be okay and happy and sunny and doing well. And um, there's bargaining and there's negotiating. If I do this, if I don't do that, then I'll feel better. And if I stay up late, then I will get more done, and then I'll feel more satisfied. Okay, blah, blah, blah. And there's a real difficulty in our culture to be sad. And, and and that in and of itself feels very overwhelming and scary. So I think a lot of my time also in my office is helping facilitate sadness, if that sounds. And in, in a safe way where people can have those feelings of loss, that they're completely justified and um and come through them to feel to feel to find what still is, to find what there's what's still available to them.
5: Right. I think we have a question. Emily, did you have a question you wanted to ask these two? Hi Julie, it's Emily. I did have a question but you kind of just answered it. I think what you're touching on there, what is, not what if, is so great because I mean Matthew says I have gumption and I just deal with it, but it's true. I definitely feel like my body betrayed me And I grieve the life that I want And might not get um, And what I was going to ask you What are some things For listeners like myself Who maybe don't have access to a therapist What can people be doing on their own?
3: Um, well, I think, you know Kind of when I mentioned that thought journaling You know, I, if you think of me And I give people the analogy all the time is speeding down a highway And a lot of times if we're we're living our life and we're speeding down a highway and you're having all of these feelings, we're not even aware that there's (laughs) stoplights. You're just breathing through the red lights. And part of one of the things that I ask people is to begin to watch their thoughts, begin to be a little bit more self-aware to what are they thinking about, what are those thoughts. When you begin to feel icky, when you begin to feel really low or you begin to feel very scared, what's running through your head? And then I think the more in tune with those thoughts, then you can begin to challenge those thoughts, begin to look to see if they're accurate, and that's when maybe we're slowing down at a yellow light, whatever. And then after time, after some practice with this thought watching, then you might be able to actually stop at the stoplight and make a left or a right turn. <laughs> that actually the thought that I'm thinking is not serving me, is not accurate, and I can think think some. I think can think a different way. So I think maybe the the the, the take home or maybe the homework that I would give people is to just slowly begin to self observe and to be try to try to um, challenge yourself to become more aware of what's in your head as you begin to feel
5: these difficult heavy feelings. I think that's great. I'm actively taking notes over here in studio. Everyone can attest to the page. I can page. attest.
1: Yes, she is I have a page of <laughs> fervent notes. From notes.
5: Us. Yeah. So let's let's transfer it over then to Katrina because Katrina, I know you
2: use. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but you use some methods like meditation and other ways. What what would you suggest to people if particularly if they're on their own, um, in terms of how to work through various issues, if they have yep. an illness or fear or you know any of the the things that you know to, to Emily's question.
6: Yes, and I, I can totally empathize with you, Emily, because I went through the same journey, wondering what can I do, what can I do. And I think for me, um, and I share this a lot in my book. I lay out tools, is just taking a, you know, a journal, taking a workbook, uh, you know, a notebook, whatever it is, and and just start writing down all your feelings. Like maybe even take write down all the things that are coming up that are make you angry or feel sad. Because oftentimes, you know, we mask, we carry around this heavy armor, pretending that we're one way in society, and underneath. We actually carry the sadness or the grief of the loss of what we might not get and um, or the condition we 're currently living in, and so learning to be able to re- remove the shell from our bodies and be able to free ourselves up to acknowledge our fears, acknowledge our sadness, write it all down. You can always throw it away, burn it, tear it up, whatever you want to do, and that 's freeing also and I lay out tools in my book actually to help people learn to meditate, how to listen inside. At first our minds can drive us crazy if we're not used to listening, but once we actually calm it down, we can actually start observing ourselves and ha- start having compassion for these different parts of ourselves that we have created for different times. We needed them uh, for some reasons along the way. And what we find is oftentimes that we Really, are much more resilient and powerful and able than we much more than we maybe have given ourselves credit for. And so, learning to listen within and stay quiet enough to find out what is going through ourselves, and then taking steps to take a shift. And when you know one place where you get so sick, it gets to a place where you know you're really wanting to get well. And what happens is, oftentimes we get used to feeling sick. We you get used to feeling um, unhappy because we're sick. So we have to be willing to start feeling good. And so I share one simple exercise, it's just I call it smiling high and looking up at the ceiling, putting a smile on your face just because you can and just go, yes, this is good, you know. And just by changing all the muscles in your face, changing the physiology, you literally can change your emotional state. Once we start doing that, we can start creating the intention of allowing ourselves to have that. Even if we're still sick, we can still allow ourselves to start appreciating the moments in our day. And from there, we start attracting more energetic frequency that allows us to be able to move forward towards potentially being healthy again, too, depending on the situation.
1: Hey, Katrina, actually, for both of you, a quick question. Actually, it's a two-part question. One is, uh, from more of the cynical side, do you think that one has to go through some sort of devastating life challenge to gain the capacity for appreciation in this vein? And two is we live in a society that's overly medicated and hyperchondriacal because there's a symptom and a syndrome for, like, wrongful thumb syndrome. Yes. How how do we mitigate that?
6: Well, for me, I could all just say real quickly is that I I don't think you need to hit bottom, but at the same time I think sometimes it can help people. I also know other people who have hit bottom and they never change. And so, you know, some other people see that there's maybe lacking in some area in their life but they haven't had to hit bottom, and they can make the shift and I do agree with you in terms of the cynicism you know for me I end up being asked by doctors to try all these different medications and they and I knew they weren't making me making me well in fact they made me more sick and so I agree with you I, for me I really had to learn to slow down I had to learn that you know I can't just do x y and z and be well in three months because three months came and went and I went through for few, you know several years of trying to manage my life in a new way with being sick and I think people need to realize that you know, we can't just go have a quick fix. We can't just pretend like everything's fine because then we're just carrying around more and more and really almost getting more sick. And instead, if we just allow ourselves to just, like, notice it, we can actually let it go, and things might change. We may still have the illness, but at least we can start living with it. Um, do you want me to comment on this too,
3: Matt? Sure, you That'd be great. <laughs> okay. Um, if, I'm, if I heard your question right, you had, um, Is there? does everybody have to go through therapy? And something a bit about medicine and, and there being something for everything out there. Is that right?
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's just like we—it's we, a combination of do because you, you you pretty much only treat young adults who've gone through a catastrophic medical situation. I mean, do, have you at all worked with young adults who? I mean, it's not a contest, but have gone through like maybe lesser issues.
3: Yes, I have young adults that come to me for a variety of issues. So, um yeah, I have a spectrum of of watching of watching that. I would say first with regard to does everybody need therapy. No, no, no. I don't think everybody needs therapy. I don't think you know, I think that, you know, you're 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 in control of that as a you know, whoever you are. That if it's something where you feel that need an outside perspective, gathering some new way of approaching something talking to other people, or getting a different ear on something would be beneficial and helpful to you, then, my goodness, embrace that and, and take that in. But I know that there are many people who have support systems that are available to them or are constantly curious about caring for themselves in new ways. So maybe you, you're you able to do that on your own. I think that um, Katrina keeps saying pacing and slowing down. And in at this time in your life, 20s and 30s, and and especially in New York City, and I know this is nationwide, so we might be with other people across the country listening. The big city areas slowing down is a foreign concept. I mean, come on, really slow down? So that is such an, a foreign thing to be thinking about, and none of your peers are doing that either. So that's a kind, that's something that is it takes some some you know, it's it's a new approach, and then. With regard to, um, I think with regard to medicine, I think that um, I think we do throw around words like anxiety and depression far too much in our in our culture, in our society. So anxiety and depression are actual diagnoses, but people don't get anxiety by going to the grocery store. I mean, most people don't. <laughs> <laughs> Larry you know? David I does, mean,
5: but that's a sitcom. That I mean, section, most, it's stressful. Yeah.
3: Most people don't get true anxiety. I mean, so most people don't get truly depressed trying to figure out what to wear. So, you know, most people, you know, so I would say that we throw these words around a little too much. But the actual diagnoses of anxiety and depression, you know, I do believe do have a biological component and can help, Uh, medicine can help people be able to use the coping skills to help themselves. It kind of lightens things so that you're able to help yourself. The d- medicine does not take the feeling away, and it doesn't make you happy. But it should. But if you're truly in that place where you're needing something, it can make life easier for you to help yourself.
5: If that makes sense.
1: We have uh, so, Emily wants to chime in again with a quick comment.
5: Yep. I, Julie, I think you hit on something earlier with speeding down the highway and how New Yorkers and other young adults are just so busy, and I definitely find that that happens in my life. And just one thing that in therapy we do is sometimes we I've learned to breathe in and at the top of your breath just stop. Just don't breathe. Just take a second and then breathe out and just stop. And that, for me, kind of helps me slow down sometimes. And that's something that I think other young adults who maybe don't have a therapist or haven't had experience with that could try in addition to the thought journaling that was mentioned. And also I really do like the smiling high that Katrina talked about too. I think all of those are great things that can be done at home.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, I'll add to your breathing, Emily, in that um, stopping at the top of a breath is such a great exercise. And it does kind of make you pause, makes you kind of just take a moment here. The other thing is, is I watch people in my office take deep breaths. I ask them to, and I often hear, (sighs) Wow, that's a really fast exhale. <laughs> <laughs> and so I often tell people to, to exhale through a straw. And that if you think of that, that slows you down. That slows your pace way down. And then the other body awareness piece is just to think about your
5: shoulders. Mm-hmm. I get so
3: many people in my office and their shoulders are way up at their earlobes. If you just bring your shoulders down, that also just changes your body a little bit.
5: Absolutely, Julie. Another thing that I learned that goes right along with the straw is that you actually have three lobes in your lungs, and people usually only breathe into one. So if you mm-hmm. lay on the floor and you breathe in really slowly, you can feel each lobe expand, and that helps you kind of learn, I guess, how your body works.
1: Wait, three lobes per lung? Mm-hmm. Wow.
5: Yeah. So people usually only breathe in here and sometimes get the bottom lobe. Right. But you actually have three it's amazing. Yeah, it's kind
1: of funny,
6: because we work with a lot with athletes, and oftentimes you can tell the when Google. someone's stressed, you can see that their belly's not rising at all, and they're, like, mm-hmm. breathing up in their neck. And so often people don't exhale when they're stressed. And so yeah. that's one mm-hmm. thing that we really emphasize, too, is, you know, you're holding it, and you're there between the inhale and exhale. That's a peaceful place. And also from the exhale to the inhale is also that peaceful place. And finding that and feeling that inside the body really calms us down.
0: Uh-huh.
6: Yeah, and just getting that place, we just go, ah. Letting it all go. And it's kind of interesting, too, because I totally agree with you, Julia, in terms of the slowing down piece. I know that was a hard one for me because such, I'm such a type A personality. And yet, ironically, when I learned to trust it a little bit, I felt like I was able to actually be able to be much more productive. I realized I didn't need to do a lot of these other things because I learned to prioritize. And as I've worked with people, a lot of times the people who are type A or feel like they have to always be working all the time, they're really the pe- you know most of us are those kind of people who really are afraid to listen. We're afraid to be slowed mm-hmm. down enough to be by mm-hmm. ourselves. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. we're afraid of being alone, or we're afraid of wasting time, or you know we're not being productive and being good people, or whatever it is that goes on for us. And it is scary to be in that space where there is nothing.
0: mm mm-hmm. so
6: to uh,
1: Just a quick bio one-on-one update to the Google we went, and it turns out that the right lung has three lobes, but the left lung has two lobes. Okay. So we have five lobes.
5: you got to find all of them. When all you five.
1: Channel yeah, all that, five lobes. I love lobes. that,
5: Matthew. I'm looking that up so fast.
1: That's awesome. The the internets are for more than just porn.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Questions for both of you from the chat room. We had a question here uh, from Zar. What is that question, Kenny? Did you pull it up? Uh, uh, I'm scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And I just lost it. Kenny, pull up the question from <laughs> Zar. All right, is
4: there a point in time when there is too much therapy? For example, if you've gone after it, reflected, persevered, coped, and people start telling you that you're making too much out of it and you have to quit focusing on it. So I I guess what I get from that is, like, you know, when you become too much of a survivor.
6: Oh, yes. I'm sure Julie couldn't talk about this one. I mean, I I'm a therapist. I was a marriage and family therapist, and I mainly do peak potential work at this point. But I can share from my experience that yes, I think sometimes you can. Some people go in and they become cycle of themselves, so to the point where it's kind of like the perpetual student who just enjoys totally analyzing and studying and and never really taking action to the next step. And so I think it's important to look within. But one thing I was also trading in was gestalt therapy, which is you really don't have to go back and analyze, in my view anyway, go back and analyze every single little thing that happened in your life because it shows up here right now for you to be able to observe if you're paying attention. So I really believe that what's happening in this moment is kind of how you live your whole life, most likely. And so how you actually... Maybe had, something, maybe had an issue with Johnny today and you're bringing that in as you talk to a therapist. Maybe that issue triggers something that happened when you were 5 or 10 years old. that became a pattern in your life. But as long as you can observe that and shift the pattern, a new awareness might occur that allows you to be able to move on. And with that being said, I'm, you know, and, you know, everybody might have a different perspective on this, but I'm not convinced that you need to see a therapist for a long time. Sometimes you may outgrow the therapist or you might be in a place where you need a break and just to process where you are at. So i don't i I agree that maybe maybe if you just stay in a place too long and just get too caught up in needing therapy, maybe that's not healthy for you either and I agree with I agree with all of that I absolutely agree you know I say to people
3: when they first call and I think people get a little bit ambivalent or unsure about how to even begin and I say, you know, I wouldn't be a good therapist, frankly, if I made you dependent upon therapy. <laughs> the goal is to help you to feel more like you're able to cope and feel feel functioning and go live your life yeah uh, you know, yeah yeah so I see people for a short amount of time like pretty regularly and then you know we work together on what's making sense and then people often call me for what what I call booster shot appointments like I haven't seen them in a few few months or a few weeks or whatever and then they call and they say can I come in and I'm I'm sure we have a booster product, booster shot appointment and then they go back so you know it's, it's up to each individual it's a very individualized question and hopefully it's something that you work on together with your
1: therapist all right, we're going to wrap it in just a few minutes, but my last uh, set of questions has to do with the best way to find the right therapist for you if you want one, accessing the right kind of therapist who may have experience specifically with young adults with cancer, and and, and insurance issues that that plague young young adults or young Americans for that matter who either have insurance but are underinsured or don't have insurance at all um can you each each tie uh those three elements together let's start with Julie
3: This is a big question and, and kind of hard um i finding a good therapist is is paramount you you have to find somebody that you find a fit with otherwise it's no good and you're not going to feel you're getting anything out of it i think um interviewing a therapist is is um is that as valid, and you're entitled to do that. And what do I mean by interviewing? Just chatting, <laughs> just talking, not like you're having actual interview questions, but you gather a lot of information on somebody's tone of voice, how they listen to you, how they respond to what you tell them. And if you're feeling that they're hearing you and it's resonating for you, then that's a good sign. If you're not getting a good, good feel off of that, pay attention. Some of those feelings don't you don't really get a good read on until you meet with somebody face-to-face. But um, But really feeling like you have a good fit. Um, There is a there is a resource out there that I I don't know how many people know, but Psychology Today has a zip code finder where anywhere you are in the country you can go to PsychologyToday.com and you can put in you go to there's a tab find a therapist you can put in your zip code and it will bring up people all within your area. You can check off what you want them to specialize in. So let's say you want somebody for grief, for illness for, uh, I don't know, fertility, for whatever it is. You check those off. People that register themselves there identify their specialties, and then you can be, they write a blurb, so it's kind of like the match.com of therapy finding, and you can begin to search and see what you find there. That's a good resource.
1: And insurance?
3: Oh, and insurance. Insurance is tricky. Now, obviously, most insurance companies have a list of um, therapists that are under their insurance, Places like Psychology Today, what I just mentioned, people do list what insurances they take. You should know if you have mental health benefits. And the other thing I would, now, would check is if you have out-of-network benefits because many therapists don't accept insurance. The unfortunate thing is because of managed care. That's the reason for that. But if you've got out-of-network benefits, then they, you, you can get a percentage of your fee um, back to in your pocket. And if that's the case, many therapists will negotiate their fee knowing that you are having to pay this out-of-pocket. So if they normally charge this much because that's what insurance is going to pay them, but knowing that you're going to be paying out-of-pocket, maybe they'll negotiate that down. So, so always um, it's a business question, not a, not a therapy personal question. So you, can, you can talk that over with your therapist.
1: And there are lots of free therapy services at many cancer centers. Is that correct?
3: yep of course. Good leading question, Matt. So, so most cancer centers obviously have very astute and experienced um, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers right on staff in the in the um, hospital. Um, also, there are big national organizations that have free supportive services, and you can call them and begin to get some information and referral sources and and just an initial kind of touch point with a, with a therapist with a social worker on the phone so um these these resources are absolutely out there for for when you're new, when you're diagnosed and when you're going through treatment and even as a survivor too
0: it's All right, right Katrina, we just, take, yeah,
1: take us out, Katrina.
2: Yeah, we just, we just have about a, a minute left, Katrina, if there's
1: anything add Sure, you want I
2: totally to
6: agree to a lot with everything she said. The only thing I might add is that um, trust yourself when you do the interview with a the therapist. I totally agree with doing an interview, and um, I think it, you'll know. Like you may call three or four people and, and say, I'll get back to you if I'm interested in working with you, cause you and be okay with that. Know it's okay to do that. That's taking care of yourself. Um, because oftentimes, and like I said, I went to one and knew that it wasn't the right one initially. So trust trust yourself. You'll know intuitively what's best for you on that, and um, and be on your path. Know that you can. Just, you're never alone. That you're you're. There's a lot of people out there
2: who are willing to help you. Great,
1: amazing. Thank you both so
2: much. What a great show. Really helpful Really, really good.
1: Really good okay, stuff. Thank you so Emily
2: on. Signed off. Yes. <laughs> Ju- Julie, an old friend, and Katrina, a new friend, to the Stupid Cancer family. Thank you both so much.
1: All right, thank you Julie so much. Larson and Katrina Rutke, Thank you guys so much for everything. Good luck. Thank you.
6: Thank you.
1: You know, I'll just uh, I just want to chime in real quick that I I spent the first year of my diagnosis and subsequent treatments alone. No therapy. No, all my friends went off to grad school. It was god awful, horrible. Yeah, Um, yeah, I mean, my parents were great, my brother was great, and my my closest inner core of friends were great, but everyone said it wasn't the same as finding someone else or having the right kind of therapist. And honestly, I feel like part of my life was saved by finding the right therapist a year later. I was really angry it took me a year to find this woman, but she counseled me and she became like an aunt. And I still see her once a year or so, just to follow up, but she's seen me through... My survivorship, she's seen me through starting to play piano again, getting a job, meeting Jessica, my wife, uh, having children, building this organization, and, and it's just been such a very special value. And, and yeah. just from a personal perspective, therapy, the right kind of therapy with the right kind of person, the right relationship will really make all the difference. And
4: 13 years and, later, you hired me. Yes. To keep you sane on a daily basis. <laughs> exactly.
2: Break. And I think, I think also just as a last thought, you know, sometimes it's really difficult to go through therapy while you're going through treatments or when you're first diagnosed because Great there's so much point. that you have to be focused on, you know, just to, just to heal yourself physically. And I think for me, a lot of my emotional fallout came Once all the treatment was over, once I kind of walked away and the doctor said, okay, bye-bye, I was like, okay, now what? And that's when I found myself really emotional. I didn't really have time to be emotional. You know, while I was getting chemo and having surgery and all of that, I was too focused on those tasks at hand. But once that was over and I tried to pick up the pieces of my life and get back, that's when the floodgates opened emotionally, and that's when therapy Really came in handy.
1: Well, they say the, the worst day of your cancer treatment is your last.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then you
1: just, uh, the rug gets pulled out, the anchor gets lifted up, and there's, you know, who knows what's next.
2: Yep. Anyway, good stuff from those folks.
1: Good stuff, good stuff. Yep. All right, well, thanks, Lisa, for calling us in from the bunker. We'll see you next week. Absolutely. And uh, now it is time for our closing sequence. head to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a
0: grown man naked? And so. To all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, my <laughs> you done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer.
1: Alrighty, folks, that is tonight's show, our 232nd broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. Mr. Kenny Kane, Matt Beckett, James Manning, the lovely Emily Morrison, Katrina Radke, and Julie Larson. Thanks for coming on the show tonight. Next week, what the hell is a telomere? Genomics and the future of psychosocial well-being through the scienciness of cancer. You can't miss next week. It's going to be an epic show. Amazing biological breakthroughs going on. Uh, Featuring Dr. Laurie Wenzel from the uh, Professor of Medicine and Public Health at UC Irvine. Dr. Ed Nelson, Associate Professor of Medicine and Molecular Biology at UC Irvine. And Dr. Lisa Lambert, Survivor Spotlight at the uh, Young Adult Breast Cancer Survivor. She's a JD at UC Irvine. It's a UC Irvine Palooza. If you've missed... Any of our past shows down the wall for free on iTunes at iTunes.stupidcancer.com or check out the archives, all five and a half years of them at stupidcancer.show.com. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck on behalf of Lisa Bernhardt, myself, and a whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday.